So if you have a Bible tonight, I'd love for you to turn to the book of 2 Thessalonians. Thank God. 2 Thessalonians is a, it's an interesting book that's full of a lot of good things that uh, we'd be smart to pay attention to. We're going to read something that we've read before. And um, did I say 2 Thessalonians? That's what I meant. <laughs> just, you know, just tilt your head. You'll be fine. In fact, this whole sermon, if you just tilt your head, you'll be fine. 2 Thessalonians is a wonderful uh, example of a church that took the Word seriously. Took the Word of God seriously. Now, it's easy to say, I, I follow Jesus, I believe in God. It's another thing to let that totally transform your life. A lot of people say they believe in God. A lot of people say they believe in Jesus. A lot of people say they follow Jesus. But by definition, following means you go where He went. doesn't just mean you... You're a fan of Jesus. Doesn't mean you clap for all the nice things that he says. Doesn't mean you just quote him on Facebook. It means that you follow him at some point in time. And in fact, it's got to change everything. We've talked about this before, but think about what you really say you believe. What do we say we believe? We believe in a God who created everything. The Bible says that he holds everything together by the word of his power. That's the God we believe in. The center of everything. The, the creator of the universe and the one whose word holds everything together. We believe in a God that sent his son, Jesus, to come and take flesh, be one of us, and die for us. That's something we not only believe, but base our lives on, and the fact that he got up. The fact that he rose in three days, and, and we, we've got disciples that proved it with their lives. And if you were to ask somebody in the first century, and while those apostles were still alive, while the twelve were still alive, and you were to say, how do you know that Jesus is alive? But you know, Peter wouldn't have told you, well, we wrote it down. I read a letter somewhere, somebody told me that Jesus was alive. You know, I think Luke wrote that down. Luke, did you write that down? I, I know Jesus is alive because it's written down somewhere. Yeah, it was written down, that's how we know it. But that's not enough for a lot of people, just to say it's written somewhere that Jesus got up on the third day. You've also got to know that there was a demonstration that he was alive. That Peter and John and all the other disciples, they saw Jesus, they experienced him. And then you find out in the first part of Acts that even though Jesus wasn't physically there, that the power of the Holy Spirit so transformed their lives that for the rest of their life, they were witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they didn't just claim, well, it was written somewhere in a book. They were obvious proof that Jesus was alive. We've talked about this before, but if this was whole a big scam, if Jesus really never rose from the grave and it was a big scam that his disciples put on, they would have given it up the first week they tried it. Because it was not a popular thing to do. It didn't get them free meals. It didn't get them, you know, an extra night stay at the inn. It didn't get them high fives all around Jerusalem. It bought them a bunch of trouble. But they went to the prisons. They, they, they endured beatings. They went to their, I mean, lived long lives, but... Sometimes God let them out of prison. Sometimes an angel let them out. At the end of their life, many of them as old men, not all of them, many of them as old men, gladly went to their deaths without renouncing the name of Jesus Christ. Many times a public death, believing and still saying, He's alive. Now that's proof to a lot of people. 
Because if you were faking and if you were not telling the truth, you would have given up a long time ago. There's something real about this. You know, it is a powerful thing to understand that the Word of God is a book of history. Now that we do find history in here. But you have to also believe that it is the Word of God. That's what we call it, the Word of God. And if it is the Word of God, it's not just history. It's not just education. It's a transforming power. The Word of God created the world. The Word of God called Lazarus out of the tomb. I don't believe these are just folk legends and myths. They really did happen. So if you really believe this is the Word of God, then it's not just like an instruction manual. You know, I've had instruction manuals in life that some were right in my wheelhouse. I was able to do this. I could put this together. And when you become a new father, you know what that's like to always be putting things together. Suddenly you feel like, I mean, I wish I had taken a couple of classes in school, but you're putting stuff together all the time. And sometimes the instructions make sense, sometimes they don't. There's been other things in life, though, where you could give me an instruction manual. doesn't mean I'd be able to do it. Just today, we're at the museum with the... Um, at the, the oil center, you know the, the thing they've got for the kids, the oil education thing? They've got levers and buttons that you press, things that light up, but most of that stuff was over my head. You know, they're talking about, I mean, tiny, uh, uh, I mean, molecular things that are going on. They're talking about all this chemistry that's going on, and the kids love it because they can pull a lever and a light comes on, but if you really read it, it's really complicated. So I can't go uh, spend a day at the Bar Colony Museum and spend a day playing with the oil thing and reading all the signs and then go over and go with Josh to work and say, don't worry, I got this. I can run this. I figured it out. I pushed a button and things lit up. I know how this works. I read all the signs. I read a comic strip on the way that explains how the oil field works. I can do your job just fine. I'd fail, wouldn't I? Bible sometimes seems like it's over our head, but it's not. Because what it is, it's the Word of God. It's not simply instruction. It's instruction with empowering. Let me give you an example. It's an example we've used before. When Paul sees the man at Lystra who cannot walk and says, get up on your feet, the man had been lame since birth, never had the ability to walk. So Paul tells him, get up and walk. Now, does the fact that somebody told him to walk automatically fix him? I'm sure he tried to walk before. I'm sure people had told him to walk. Just hearing get up and walk, made, if you're made to feel guilty for it, if you're instructed on, if somebody were to come to a lame man and say, you, know, you just don't know how to do it. You put your left foot and then you put your right foot and you put your weight on those legs as you walk. I mean, it's not like he had to learn how to walk. He had no strength to walk. What the Word of God did was not just tell him to walk, it empowered him to walk. So when we read the Word of God, when we hear the Word of God, we're not just telling you how to live, you're being empowered to live. When Jesus told Lazarus, get out of the tomb, he's not instructing Lazarus on how to start living, because Lazarus is dead. But it is the Word of God that enables him to wake up from the dead, come out of the tomb. So there's going to be stuff that you hear. There's going to be stuff that you read in the Word. And you go, this is beyond me. This is beyond my ability. I can't do this. Maybe you've never met me, but I can't do this. Maybe that guy can do it. He's a, he's, he, you know, he seems to have his act together. Or that lady can do it. She seems to know what's going on, but I can't do this. Until you start treating it like the Word of God. 
Because it's the Word of God which empowers you to do things. So if you will take it as the Word of God, if God tells me to go start a church, you may have no ability to start a church, but if it really was God, you're enabled to do it. You're empowered to do it. Now, does that mean you don't study? Does that mean you're, you go unprepared? No. The Bible says study to show yourself approved. You don't just go wildly in a situation and say, doesn't matter, it'll all work out. No, you have to obey God and listen to His voice. But don't ever disqualify yourself by saying, this is above my head. This is beyond my pay grade. I, I'm just not able to do this. Because if you heard it and the Spirit of God put it in your heart and you read it in here, you can do it. You absolutely can. So we're going to read something that we've read before in 2 Thessalonians. Now you know earlier in his other letter that he wrote, the first letter, he said something that, I, that stuck with me all, all my time in ministry, which was, he said, I thank God constantly that when we first came to you, brethren, you didn't take the word that we spoke, the things we preached. You didn't receive it as a word from men, but for what it really is, the word of God. And it is that word which is performing its work in you. So here's what I learned from that. That's in 1 Thessalonians. We're in 2 Thessalonians, but that's in 1 Thessalonians. Here's what I learned from that. That when this guy, Paul, came and spoke to them, that church was noble enough to look past the guy talking. To understand that Paul had limitations. He had fallibilities. There were things that weren't perfect about Paul. But they were able to, to, to separate that and say, I believe that God is speaking through this guy. And when they received the Word of God, they didn't receive it as, well, that's Paul's opinion. They received it as, that's what God's saying to us. And it says, it's that Word which performs its work in you. In other words, once they received the Word of God as the Word of God, it started working in them. It doesn't say they started working for it. It started working in them. Now you've got to realize that every time God speaks to you, every time you open this book, it has the ability to begin its work in you if you'll let it. Here's how you get it backwards. You read this and go, how do I do that? How do I do that? And you try to perform what the Word is telling you to do. You'll usually fail because you'll be doing it out of your own strength, out of your own ability, and you don't have the ability to do everything God's told you to do. But if you'll rely on Him and read this in faith and say, okay, I, I don't get all of this. I, I may not be the perfect person. I may not be the, the, the boldest person. I may not be the, the, the smartest person in the group. But I really do believe that God is speaking to me. I really do believe that this is His Word. And you just receive it and say, okay, God, if you said it, I believe it then all of a sudden it starts to work in you. And you find out that those things like we talked about a few weeks ago, the fruits of the Spirit, like it says in Galatians, they are fruits of something that are in you. They are fruits. They come out of a life that's surrendered to God. They will come out of a life that is lived by the Spirit. If you choose to live your life by the Spirit, these things naturally come out. You might not have been a very loving person. You might not have been a very joyful person. You might not have been a very patient person. But when you choose to say, okay, I'm letting you run the show, and I'm letting your work perform its work in me, then what happens is all of a sudden that stuff just starts to come out of you. Now here's, here's what it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. He says, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you. 
and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, and He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you're doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Here's what the words worked in them. Here's what God is directing their heart towards. Because they've received this word, it's doing something in them. There's love that they didn't have before. There's steadfastness. I mean, you know what? How many flaky people come into the family of God? Lots. But God is able to take flaky people and cause steadfastness to go in their life. God's able to take very angry people and cause peace to come in their life, cause joy to come in their life. And so one thing that I love about this is it says, pray that the word would spread rapidly. The literal Greek says, pray that the word would run. Can you picture that? Now maybe you're having a children's church moment in your head and you're picturing a little Bible puppet running as fast as he can. No? Okay, that's just me. Um, But that's not what it really means, of course. When we talk about the word running, how is the word going to run? How's it going to spread rapidly? That's going to spread through people, right? In a moment, we're going to go to uh, read about what went on in the book in, in, in the church in Ephesus when it first began. And uh, we're going to see what happens when the word begins to spread rapidly. Because, you see, when we talk about the word spreading as rapidly as he's talking about, it's not just going as fast as Paul can go or just going as fast as Timothy can go. That's not really spreading rapidly. That's spreading from place to place as far as they go. But really, in the early church, you see something. You see the word spread faster than anybody could actually carry it. You see it faster than any one missionary. You see it faster than any 12 apostles. You see it spread through people in their lives. But I want you to see what he says. Before we turn to uh, the book of Acts, I want you to see what he says. He says that it would spread rapidly, that it would run and be glorified. Consider what that means for the Word to be glorified. When we always pray that God would be glorified, right? That Jesus would be glorified. What does that mean? If Jesus is glorified, it means He's lifted up. People see Him for who He is. That, that uh, people honor Him, put Him in the right place. You see, if Jesus is glorified in your life, He's, he's number one. He's first place. There's nothing more important than Him. He's really being glorified. But also what's happening is you're seeing evidence of Him all through your life. And when the Word of God is being glorified, yes, it's number one. Yes, it's being honored. But I believe also it's being demonstrated. It's actually transforming lives. I believe that when we talk about the Word being glorified in us and spreading rapidly, I believe that before the Word, can, we, we want to we pray that the Word is glorified in Lloydminster, that the Word is glorified in the North Midwest. We want to pray that the Word of God is glorified in Alberta and Saskatchewan and all throughout Canada and North America. But for all that to happen, it has to be glorified in you. And we can pray all the prayers we want. We can get down at the altar and pound our fists on the stairs, use a whole box of tissues, But until you're willing to let the Word be glorified in you, it won't be glorified through you to your city. Because you can talk about something, but it's not enough to talk about something. 
The gospel was not, never meant to just be talked about. It was meant to be proclaimed and demonstrated. Demonstrated. The apostles went out and demonstrated the Word of God. You recall that one of the first prayers they prayed as a church that the Word would spread? They not only prayed that they'd have the boldness to speak, but that God would move His hands, that signs and wonders would take place. Not only did the signs and wonders take place through people being healed or people being taken care of, but it was, it was also the sign and wonder of a group of people that didn't fit together, being placed together, and people that wouldn't have loved each other, loving each other, people that were greedy and selfish, all of a sudden sharing everything that they had. It transformed these people. And that spreads really quick. You know, you go to work every day, and you tell people how to live. They're not going to like it that much, are they? You're just telling them how to live all the time. Sometimes that goes over well, sometimes it doesn't. But if they can see the gospel through your life, if they can see the word of God in your life, a lot of times that leads them to a place of belief because they, they see it demonstrated. They're not just hearing about it, they're observing it. I love that scripture in Titus. The Apostle Paul instructed those who were serving unlawfully they were slaves, and, and he doesn't say that slavery is okay. But he says, I don't want you to rebel against, against the system. I want you to lead your masters to Christ. And he says, here's what you do. He says, don't worry about them paying you. God's going to pay you back for all of this. God's going to pay you back for all of this. It's unjust that you're a slave. It's unjust that you have to deal with this. But God will reward you for every work that you do. But then he says this, adorn your doctrine. Adorn your doctrine. That means put it on. Wear it. Let, your, let what you believe become such a part of you that people observe it just as they observe what you're wearing every day. That it really does transform you. Turn to the book of Acts and, and we're going to go, as promised, to see what happened in, in the early stages of the church in Ephesus. little background for most of you. Ephesus was not a nice place. It was a tourist spot, but not for the reasons that you and I would take a trip. Ephesus was a dirty city. And I don't mean dirty as in muddy. I mean dirty as in very perverse. You remember what Paul said to the church in Thessalonica? He said that, we would be de- that you'd be delivered from perverse and evil men. The book of Philippians says that God has placed us in a wicked and perverse generation to whom we shine as stars in the universe to know that God did not just call us to move into a colony somewhere and just box ourselves off and say we want nothing to do with you. He didn't call us to go live in the caves. He didn't call us to go live in the mountains. He didn't say the moment you come born again I'm going to rapture you and take you to heaven. Jesus' last prayer his last big prayer that we have recorded was in John 17. He says Lord I don't ask you to take them out of the world. But I ask that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus' prayer for you is not to take you out of the darkness. Not to take you out of a perverse society. Not to take you out of a wicked place. But to keep you from the evil one. That you'd be a light in that evil place. Now does that mean that I go and... Does that mean you go out and hang out at a strip club and say, I'm a light in the darkness? No, don't be dumb. Don't do that. You can be a light in the darkness outside of the club. 
you don't need to be that guy because the Bible also talks about, it shows us a great example of a guy like Joseph who is upright, who loves the Lord, and yet when a time of great temptation came, he knew what to do, run away. Randy and I were talking about this a few months ago. There's a scripture that says, and we all quote it, we all know it very well, submit yourself to God, it's in the book of James, submit yourself to God, Resist the devil and he will flee. And we, we understand that the word flee means run away in terror. Do you know that same word flee is used in a scripture that says flee youthful lusts. So we, we, we're used to standing strong against the enemy. Put your dukes up. All right, I can, I can take this. But when it comes to that lust stuff, run away. <laughs> Just get out of there. And so... We understand that there are times where you don't just stick around and partake in darkness. But there are other times where we understand God put us in this city. God put us in Canada. God put us wherever He puts you. And there will always be darkness around you. There will always be perversion. There will always be wickedness. God's not asking you to shelter yourself in some sort of bubble so you don't know what's going on. He's asking you to be a light in that place. And allow the Word of God to transform you so it can transform your city. I believe God wants to transform this city. I believe the Word of God is meant to run and spread rapidly in Lloydminster. It's not just about people hearing about Jesus. It's not just about people hearing that He exists. It's about people observing the power of God, about people coming face to face with Jesus. I believe that that's important. We know a little bit about Ephesus, that it was where the temple of Artemis was. We find ancient historians like Virgil talk about the fact that the things that went on at that temple would make young women blush and young men's hearts turn to lust. It was not a temple where people just came and worshipped. There was temple prostitution that took place. There was great perversion. It was, a, it was a city that was defined by sorcery and magic. That every type of sorcery was practiced, practiced there. Not only idolatry, um, one of the, as we f- we'll find out in a moment, one of the main industries was little silver idols of Artemis, the mother goddess. But not only that, and the way you worship the mother goddess, because the mother goddess was a goddess of fertility, was by doing some things you should not be doing, especially in public. But not only that, but there was a great emphasis put on sorcery, about casting spells that your business would do good and that your enemies wouldn't do good. And it was just a wicked place. And does God say, okay guys, stay away from Ephesus. I want you to run as far away from Ephesus as you can. No, He doesn't. He sends His people to Ephesus to start a fire, to start something, to start um, a movement, to start spreading this word of the gospel. In Acts chapter 19, the Apostle Paul arrives at Ephesus and he finds that there are already some disciples there. The gospel's already hit Ephesus. God didn't just wait for Paul to get there. The word of God had spread even to Ephesus. Ephesus, as you know, was in Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. And it spread north from Jerusalem. It spread uh, you know, east from Greece and, and, and hit Ephesus. And believers even found themselves there. In Acts chapter 19, verse 1, it says, It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth... Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus. And he found some disciples. 
He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said to him, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So they're not very far along, are they? He said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who is coming after him. That is in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul had laid their hands on him, laid his hands upon them, sorry, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. They were in all about 12 men. So picture this. Paul comes to this wicked city, and I don't know how he finds these guys, but he finds 12 guys that believe. They don't even know what they believe. They, they, they know that John preached repentance. They believe that. Okay. We got baptized. We repented. But they don't know much about Jesus. And they know nothing about the Holy Spirit. He comes and he starts with these 12 guys. Now, he didn't start and, and, and say, you know, I'm, I'm not going to that city until there are at least 100 people uh, who are, want me to come. Or at least, you know, 1,000 people want me to come and I get an honorarium when he gets there. No, no, he's just going to find some people who at least believe in the very elementary things of God. He finds 12 guys. And you know, 12 guys are enough to start something big. Our whole gospel, our whole uh, mission, our whole church, or the early church, Christianity, began with 12 guys. So that's enough. So when they heard this, they're baptized, and they begin to speaking in tongues and prophesy. They don't get a portion, they get the full meal deal. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months. This is the synagogue where they don't yet believe Jesus is the Messiah. Do you think the Apostle Paul cared that much? No, he didn't seem to care. He just goes in. It says, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. The school of Tyrannus was not a Christian school. It was not a, not a God-fearing school. It was a pagan, uh, probably school of phil Greek philosophy. Now, he reasons daily there because all the normal Greeks are smart enough not to meet in this place in the middle of the day. I imagine the school of Tyrannus might have had morning sessions or evening sessions, but during the day, you don't stay outside in, a, in an auditorium. You don't stay outside in a place where the heat's going to beat down on you. But the Christians were so hungry for the Word of God that they start meeting there every day. And they take over a a school that's not meant as a church, but it'll work. Because we know that God doesn't dwell in buildings. He doesn't live in a church. He lives in us. That's important to understand why Paul left the synagogue. He left the synagogue because at some point, guys, you've got to decide whether or not you're going to believe in Jesus. If you continue to hear the word and continue to disbelieve, the more you hear it and won't do it, the more you hear it and resist it, the harder your heart will get. It's why it's dangerous to come to church. Because if you come to church and don't plan on doing anything you ever hear, your heart gets harder every time you hear it. Because you've told your heart, resist it. This isn't for you. This is for everybody else, but it's not for you. And the gospel was never meant to be received that way. God is speaking to us, and you've got to respond to that. So he stops preaching 
at the synagogue because there's enough people that have hardened their heart and they're getting harder every time. So he withdraws with the disciples. He teaches daily. Now if you can read those words wrapped around the pillar. He's teaching daily in the school of Tyrannus. And it says he's reasoning, so I believe there's probably some unsaved people, some, some straight-out philosophy students that show up at this daily meeting and are learning about Jesus. But watch what happens here. This took place for two years. So where's Paul for two years? Ephesus. It says he's speaking daily two years in Ephesus, right? Is he anywhere else? No, he's here. He's at Ephesus. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now wait a second. How is all of Asia supposed to hear the word of the Lord if Paul's still in Ephesus? Apparently, whoever he's talking to is spreading out and going and teaching and preaching and moving and the gospel is spreading by these young, green, new-in-the-faith disciples. They're spreading the word all through Asia, both to Jews and Greeks, which means that they're going outside of their own cultural comfort zone and talking to anybody that will hear it. Now, this is the way the gospel is meant to be preached. Remember in Ephesians chapter 4 where it says that we come together to be equipped for the work of ministry. That church is a place that this service on Wednesday night, a service on Sunday, is not a time where you get to clap for the person that's doing the ministry. This is a time where you get equipped to do the ministry. And in this case, he's, he starts out with 12 guys. But it grows and it grows. And although we all like to stay in a nice big church that's happening, that's not what it was meant to be. Because at some point, you've got to leave. Not everybody. You've got to go where God tells you. But the church isn't just supposed to stay in one spot and grow like this. It's supposed to spread. Like a flower being pollinated. Like... like like seeds being spread in the wind. This is what was supposed to happen in the early church in Jerusalem. You remember that? In Jerusalem, they were supposed to start in Jerusalem, go to Samaria, or Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the world. But it was so much fun in Jerusalem, and there all the apostles were in Jerusalem, that nobody left until there was persecution after Stephen died, and they were all scattered. Then you see guys like Philip go into Samaria and have revival. Then you see guys go down to Antioch and begin to preach not only to Jews but to other Greeks. And, and, and men of Cyprus begin to speak to other pagans and Gentiles. And those people get born again. And God's hand is on it and starts to move. Paul and Barnabas come to Antioch. And then that church starts happening. So much so that people come from Jerusalem to Antioch. You see, it's really tempting to always go where everything's happening, right? But here's what happens. Even though Paul and Barnabas are having a great time in Antioch, they had great prophets like Agabus. They've got great people that love and are receiving the word. At some point, the elders in the church in Antioch lay their hands on Paul and Barnabas and send them out to go spread the gospel. This is what the church was meant to do. So these 12 guys became 120 guys, became 1,000 became 5,000. We don't know how big it was. We know this church started to get bigger and the people that were supposed to stay in Ephesus kept coming. 
But God put it on people's hearts to go and spread this word. And it spread through all of Asia. You see, it was more powerful and bigger than one man. The gospel is always bigger than a preacher. Doesn't matter if you have a preacher that can preach good, tells good stories, is on TV. It's not all about that. That's fine, but it's not about that. The gospel is bigger than any one person. And it began to spread rapidly and was glorified in their hearts. Now here's what it says. It says in verse 11 that God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick. And the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place, you see there were Jewish exorcists that, that are Jewish in name only because they had taken what it meant to be a Jew and really twisted it. They had added a bunch of things. They had, had really started to partake and mix what they believed with the sorcery that was taking place in Ephesus. They mixed their Jewish beliefs with the local cultural sorcery beliefs. And they kind of tried to put them together. And they'd say, yeah, we'll cast out evil spirits. What they tried, went around doing was claiming that they could make those bad spells go away by, by doing their good work. But it was still just magic. That's all it was. It wasn't worshiping the true God. They weren't true Jews worshiping Jehovah. No, these were guys that were just basically uh, snake oil salesmen that were <laughs> going around practicing magic. And they might have had some results. But watch what happens when they try to copy what Paul did. Some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Do you notice how they're doing it? They don't believe in Jesus. They just found out there's a spell that works. That guy has a spell that works. He uses this Jesus name. Ooh, that's a powerful spell. We'll use that too. It says they were trying to name over people the name of Jesus, just like they learned a new abracadabra. But watch what happens to these fools. It says they went from place to place, and attempting to name, and it says, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches, verse 14. They, they don't believe in it, but they, they think it's going to work. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul. But who are you? Those are the worst words you could ever hear. Uh-oh. And the man in whom, the evil spirit, in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Now this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them, and all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Wait a second. Are you telling me that the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified even more because this happened to these fools? I'll tell you why it was, yeah. There was a demonstration that there was a difference between that junk that they practiced and the real, true, living God. Now you say, did this really happen? Is this just a story that's in the Bible? I'll tell you who wrote the book of Acts. Not only did God breathe it and inspire it, but this was written by a serious historian named Luke. A man who was there, traveled with Paul, saw all these things, and documented it very meticulously by every standard that, a, that any real historian would do. And he saw all this. A man who was a physician, not, not given to superstition, not given to myths and fables, 
but wrote down what he saw. Not only that, but God spoke through Luke and had him write this book. I believe with, with no doubt in my mind that all, everything that we're talking about tonight actually happened. And a, and a city was changed because of it. Now watch what happens after. The name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified because they're, they're saying, wait a second. What these guys are preaching is for real. It's not just a trick like these guys. It's not just a spell. It's not just magic. There's a real power here that we don't even know about. Watch what happens. It says in verse 18, Many of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. See, they had been involved in sorcery. They'd been involved in witchcraft. And it wasn't just enough to join the church. They wanted to have nothing to do with that old life. You see, the Word of God was not just education to them. It wasn't just a popular fad. It was changing them. It was transforming their life. See, their whole life was based around this system of thinking, and now they're going as far away from it as they can. God's Word is actually changing them. It says this. It says, They kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices, and many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. Wow. They counted up the price of them and found it fifty thousand pieces of silver so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing we see that spreading and being glorified it's the same thing it was growing mightily and it was winning went into a wicked city a messed up city an evil city a perverse city a twisted city and the word won and I'll tell you why it won because it says, so the word was winning. So it, it's tied into what he said before, that people actually were changing. It wasn't just a new belief that rolled in. Their lives were being transformed. Now we hear all about people doing book burnings now, and it's ridiculous, because what they're doing is they're buying books that they disagree with and just to burn them. Which, I've worked in the book industry. You're just helping them. And it's not what happened in the Bible. They didn't burn other people's books. They didn't find all the people they disagreed with and burn their stuff. They burned their own books. Now you can feel good about going to HMV and buying all these bad CDs and burning them. The artist will thank you for that. Not only did you give them publicity, but you bought a bunch of their CDs. Well done. You probably made some enemies in the process. But in this case... These were books that they spent a lot of money on and that their businesses, at, before they got born again, they believed their business depended on it. These are the spells that are going to make my business succeed. These are the things that are caused my competitors to fail. It was drilled into them that they needed this stuff. They bring all of these books in a demonstration of this isn't who I am anymore. I have turned, as it says in, one of, in Paul's letters to Thessalonians, it says they turn from dead idols to serve a living God. And they threw their books in the fire and they didn't say, wait a second, this cost a lot of money. Maybe I can sell it on eBay. No, they just threw it in. That's the temptation. I shouldn't have this anymore, but it's such a waste. No, they just got rid of it. Burn it. They didn't care how much money it cost because you know what? We've just decided to serve a real God. And the real God can take care of us. They throw these things in the fire. And the whole city sees that the gospel 
is not just a new philosophy to them. The gospel is not merely another fad. But these lives are totally different. See, in order for the word to be glorified in your city, it has to be glorified in you. You want God to change your city, let God change you. These guys burned it in the sight of everyone. But like I said, they didn't go try to burn everybody else's books. They didn't go run into people's houses and go, ha ha, got it, ran out, thrown in the fire. Sometimes we're so obsessed with trying to change the world that we forget that God's here to change us. Let Him do His work. Let the Holy Spirit do His work. They didn't try to condemn everybody else's. They just said, we're done with this. People drew lines in the sand. People saw that God was changing their lives and the word of the Lord was growing mightily and was winning. It was winning a battle that it was too small to win. Now we're going to try to get through the rest of this. I realize we're running short on time. I'm going get to get through the rest of this fairly quickly. It says now in verse 21, now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he'd passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. I love how it puts that. I realize it's sentences like that that make me fall in love with the New American Standard. I love its, its understated way that it says that. It doesn't say, there was a huge deal going on. It says, there was no small disturbance concerning the way. It's a very proper way to say it, isn't it? You realize, Timothy, there's no small disturbance concerning the way. There's riots going on. <laughs> In verse 24, it says, For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis. Do the math, guys. Your business is to make little shrines of idols. And a guy has come in to start preaching, and in two years the whole city's changed. And you're not making money on those idols anymore. You want that for our city? You want that kind of thing for our city? Now listen, I hate, I'll say this publicly, I hate the decision that our city council felt like they were forced to make concerning the strip clubs. I hate it. Because I know how it affects the family. I know how it affects men and women. And I hate it. But let me tell you, politically is not the only way you win this thing. In this situation, this man's business just dried up. Not because it was outlawed, but because nobody wanted his stuff anymore. Because people were actually born again. We have a revival in Lloydminster. The word spreads and it's glorified and starts winning in Lloydminster. It's not going to matter what's legal. People aren't going to go. No matter how many bars we have. No matter how many strip clubs we have. Now, I say that telling you this, I want them all gone. But it doesn't matter whether they're there or not. If God's word truly starts winning in this city, they can be there and lose all their customers. Here's what happens. It says, you know, he gathers a group of all these other craftsmen who do the same thing. He says, these he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades. He said, men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. You see, money kind of drives a lot of people to do what they do. It's for money, 
that people fight so hard to bring casinos and strip clubs and all these other things into our city. It's all about money. And in this case, once again, it's money. He says, our prosperity depends on this business. You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, you see some of the best testimonials to the power of God come from the mouths of our enemies. <laughs> Which, let me tell you, our enemies aren't flesh and blood. The Bible says we don't wrestle against people. We wrestle against the evil, the, the principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age. People aren't our enemy. But some of the best, some of the best compliments can sometimes come against the people that hate you the most. And they said, this has spread through almost all of Asia. This Paul, now remember, it couldn't have just been Paul. But they see that one guy came into their city and the whole city changed. This Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Now, not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis. Now, I want to tell you, this is one of the ancient wonders of the ancient world, the temple of Artemis. It's not a small thing. It's been well known throughout history. It was one of the greatest temples ever built. Here's his concern, and it's a very real concern. This temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless. And she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. This is what the adversaries say. That if this keeps going, not only will we lose our business, but the whole world, all of Asia, is going to turn away from this fake idolatry, going to turn away from this Artemis and begin serving this Jehovah, begin believing in this Jesus. Now I want you to read this and say, this isn't just something that can happen in Ephesus. This is something that can happen in Lloydminster. In Edmonton, in Calgary, in Saskatoon, this is something that can happen across the reserves of northern Canada. That, that, that God's word would not only grow, but would win. Now, are you tired of feeling? You're tired of feeling like, to so many people, the gospel is just another default thing that you were born into. I'm tired of that. I want to see it start winning in people's lives, start overtaking their lives, start changing who they are. There's some real benefits to being born in a country that began with Christian principles. Definite benefits. But I'll tell you one of the downsides is that there are people born with the default mentality of, I guess I'm a Christian, who've never really believed in Jesus. And those people need to hear the truth too. Because default Christianity, the well, I guess I'm that because I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not a Muslim. It's not going to change the world. You have to let the Word change you. It says this. When they heard this, they were filled with rage and began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with the confusion. They began rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus. Gaius, sorry, and Aristarchus. Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. When Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Also, some of the Asiarchs who were friends sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. 
So then some were shouting one thing and some another. For the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know for what reason they'd come together. There's just like, a, there's a riot. This is like, you know, there's, there's a riot going on. Let's show up. It's like Quebec or something. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander since the Jews had put him forward. And having met motion with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. When they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them as they shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and the image which fell down from heaven? So since these are all undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. For you brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session, the proconsuls are available, let them bring their charges against one another. But if you want to do anything beyond this, it should be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there's no real cause for it. And in this connection, we are unable to account for this disorderly gathering. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. I want you to see that the churches are not being accused of stealing anything, of taking anything, of burning anything down. Here's the only thing they're being accused of, preaching the name of Jesus. And here's what happens when you really preach the gospel, when you really preach it with your life and with your words and you let it change you. It spreads. It's contagious. And it's always going to win. But it's got to win in you. If it's going to prevail in Lloyd, it's got to prevail in me. And it can't just be a Sunday thing for me. It can't just be Wednesday night. It can't just overwhelm the spiritual part of me. It can't just be the part that, I, that shows up when I show up at a hospital to comfort somebody. It can't be just the part that shows up when I want to have something inspiring to say. It has to show up in my job. It has to show up in my family. It has to show up in my marriage. It has to show up in everything I do. It has to really overtake me. There's nothing about the gospel we preach that works halfway. It is an all-in thing. And I understand that sometimes there's going to be a riot because, <laughs> let's face it, the gospel messes people up sometimes. It messed with their business plan. If you're going to make your business plan based on stuff that just doesn't jive with Christianity, doesn't, I'm not talking about Christianity, I shouldn't even say that, it just doesn't jive with Jesus, then when people get born again, it's not going to work. The Christians did not feel it was their need or their obligation to go and bust down the temple. They didn't have to do it. All they had to do was spread the good news. And people stopped going to the temple. Some idiot goes and blows up an abortion clinic. People inside die. He thinks he's doing it for God. But I'm going to tell you, the battle's not won with bombs. It's not even going to be won in the political arena. It's going to be the one in the hearts and minds of men and women across this nation. It's going to be won when the gospel starts to win in their hearts. The gospel wins in us. The only way it's going to win in Lloyd is if it really wins in us. You notice what started this whole revival is people going every day to hear the word. And what happened after that? Those people that heard the word were willing to go and throw all of their expensive books in the fire 
that caused a lot of other people to believe. Miracles were happening, caused a lot of people to believe. There was a distinct difference between those who believed and those who didn't believe. And it was known by all. And the more they saw the difference, the more the name of Jesus was magnified. And people have to see the difference between you and everybody else. They've got to see it. That's how Jesus is glorified when he's shown. When he's demonstrated. When people can see that your life is different because the word grew in you and prevailed in you, now it's growing in our city and prevailing in our city. Now, I believe it's in practice, but it's also in prayer because Paul said to the church at Thessalonica, he said, pray that the word would spread rapidly. Pray that it's glorified. I believe a lot of this happens in prayer, and the rest of it happens with your willing heart saying, okay, I'm going to let this stuff change me. I'm going to let it into every part of my life, even the uncomfortable parts, even the parts that I like to think are mine, even the areas that I think I've, all, I've got all figured out. Have you ever felt like this? I've felt like this so many times where I felt like I've walked into a house and I've got it explored. And I know what's in the house and I know where every piece of furniture is. And I know everything. I've got it all figured out. I know what I believe. I can defend it. I know why I believe it. I can tell you. And then you come to a door. And you go, I hope that's just a closet. I hope there's just a broom in there. You know that God's saying, go ahead, walk through the door. Because here's the problem. If you walk through the door, there's a whole new house on the other side that you've not yet explored. And the fear is, I like to feel like I got my life figured out. I like to feel like I know why. I, my schedule works. My job works. My circle of friends are working for me. And God says, but would you like to come deeper? Would you let me in every part of your life? Would you let me into your circle of friends? That doesn't just mean that he's one of your friends. No, but he influences who your circle of friends is. Would you let me into your schedule? Would you let me totally take your schedule and change it? Would you let me into your job where all the guys really respect you, but they don't really know what you believe? Would you let me into your kids' school? Would you let me in to every little part of your life that you think you've got all figured out? Because if you will, the world's going to see that the Word is working in you. It's so important, guys, that when we hear what we hear, we let it work in us. We let it win in us. How's it going to win? You're going to have thoughts. You're going to have ideas. You're going to have paradigms. You're going to have all these things that you believe. And somebody's going to come along and show you in the Word that what you believed for 40, 30, 20 years is wrong or needs tweaking or needs updating or has got to be changed. And you're going to have to figure out whether that 20, 30, 40 years that you invested into that way of life is worth it or you'll be like the Ephesians that say, I've spent all my life and all my money on these books and this way of living, but I'm willing to throw it in the fire. Don't you think some of those men that got born again, some of those women, were in the idolatry business? That was the biggest business in, in, in Ephesus. That was the tourist business. It was the biggest thing going. Don't you think some of them that got saved were in that business too? The gospel is very threatening if you're not willing to do it. 
but it's liberating if you let it in. It's empowering if you let it in. It's life-changing. It's my sincere desire and prayer that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the goodness of God, the love of God would overwhelm our city. That all those people that are broken and messed up, that all those people that think that they've got it together, but just like the church in Laodicea, they think they're rich, but they're actually poor. They think they're clothed, but they're actually naked. All of those people would come to know the real Jesus. That they would know what real love is. That they would really know what peace is. And if that's our prayer for Lloyd, it's gotta let, we've got to let it happen here. Let the word overwhelm your life. Let him come in and change everything. We want him to change everything out there. Start right here. So the word of the Lord will grow and will win.